Thank you, Curtis. Well, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 is where we'll be this morning. We're going to be finishing that chapter as we go through Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 8. We'll be in verses 28 through 34 today. Well, it is good to be with you all, uh, especially on this holiday weekend. While many are traveling and uh, many are, are at home, it is good to be here in person with you. To those of you who are watching online, uh, we're praying for you this morning as well. And uh, just before we get started, uh, one quick thing, um, just for you as a flock to know that there is a resource for you. Um, I am pursuing some further training in biblical counseling, and I'm in the last phase of that. Um, and as part of that, you do supervised hours of counseling. So if you find yourself, you don't have to come up with a reason to come to counseling, of course. <laughs> but if you, if you find yourself in need of biblical counseling, which is really just understanding how God's Word helps us um, grow in likeness to Christ and deal with life's problems. If you find yourself in need of that, please come talk to me. Um, that is something that we want to build into the culture of our church. Really, it's discipleship. At the end of the day is what it is, right? Discipleship. So uh, just so you know that resource is there. Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34 is where we'll be today. Some of you may remember this. In 1981, a young man named uh, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was arrested for killing his landlord in Connecticut. It was a shocking event. Uh, it was really the first unlawful death ever in this small Connecticut town where it occurred. There was nothing really unusual about the murder itself. There was uh, nothing strange or out of the ordinary. But there was something very significant about the trial that followed. You see, for the first time in history, the defense argued that their client had committed this horrible act not out of passion, not out of insanity, but because he was possessed by a demon. Now, the court case stirred up a flurry of debate and discussion, uh, not just you know, the question of if, if this is a legitimate legal defense, but if demon possession was real at all. And many people today are either skeptical about the existence of demons or overly superstitious and attributing everything they don't like to demonic activity. As we look at our text in Matthew this morning, though, we will see that while Matthew certainly acknowledges the existence of demons, we see something more important for us, which is that Jesus Christ himself has authority even over demons, even over the spiritual realm. And that as the Son of God, he comes to push forward the battle lines of the kingdom of heaven, to push back against the kingdom of darkness. Let's read our text, starting in verse 28. And when he had come to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the village, they told everything especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let's pray as we go to God's word. Our great God, we thank you for your holy word, for the scriptures, that you've revealed yourself to us. Lord, this morning as we're in the Gospels, that you've revealed the life and ministry of your son, Jesus Christ, to us. Lord, we were not there, but you've given us a trusty 
and faithful account, true in every word, of who your Son is and what he has done. And Father, as we look at the authority of Jesus this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would behold him by faith, that he would be exalted in our hearts, and that we would find rest in the power of our Savior. Lord, I pray that you would help me only to say what is in agreement with your word, and to preach in a way that is helpful to your people and honoring to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Three things we see in this text this morning. First, we see the demons possess. Second, we see the Son of God delivers. And finally, the people reject. Now, to kind of zoom out for a moment, we are in the second set of a set of three miracles here in Matthew's Gospel. We saw three healings in the beginning of chapter 8 where Jesus cleansed a leper, the centurion servant, and Peter's mother-in-law. And now we're on a second set of three miracles. We saw last week how Jesus has power and authority over nature, over the storm, and how he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee with just a word. And this morning we are in the second of these three miracles where we see Jesus' authority over the spiritual realm. To pick up where we left off last week, Jesus has been surrounded by a crowd from doing these healings in Capernaum. And in response to the crowd, Jesus tells his disciples, we need to go across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so they do. They get into the boat. They're sailing. Of course, that's where the storm happens on the Sea of Galilee. And this morning we pick up in verse 28. They have arrived. They've come to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Matthew tells us specifically to the country of the Gadarenes. Now, uh, to you and I, that might just be a strange-sounding name that's hard to pronounce, but this location to a first-century Jewish reader would have actually been very significant. You see, the country of the Gadarenes refers to the territory surrounding the city of Gadara, which is kind of on the eastern shore towards the south of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Gadara, the city of Gadara, with, uh, after which this whole territory was named, was part of a, a, a coalition of Greek cities east of the Jordan called the Decapolis. And this was a coalition of 10 to 18 cities that were united under Roman rule, and they were really an alliance that was a defense against a potential Jewish rebellion. Uh, this was a very Greek area, very Gentile area. They did not like the Jewish people. They did not like Jewish culture. And Gadara, in fact, of all the cities there, was the most Greek city. It was the center of Greek and Roman culture in this place. It was not a Jewish area at all. And even though this will be the only miracle that Jesus does on this side of the Sea of Galilee, it is significant. And it does point to Jesus' mission to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Again, remember Matthew's audience, he's writing to first century Jews, and their expectation was that they would receive the kingdom and basically make the Gentiles their slaves, right? Their servants. But what we see here is something very different. Jesus goes to the Gentiles to do a miracle, to do something amazing to reveal the kingdom of God. It's not just for the Jewish nation, but the kingdom of God was for every nation under heaven. And when it comes to the Gadarenes, Jesus could not have picked a uh, more non-Jewish place to go in this immediate area, right? And when Jesus and his disciples arrive, Matthew tells us uh, something shocking happens. They are met by two demon-possessed men. See in verse 28, two demon-possessed men. And Luke and Mark, in their accounts of this, uh, this event, they record one man coming out to meet Jesus. Matthew mentions two. This really isn't so much of a contradiction as it is an additional detail that Matthew is including. Uh, it's probably likely that in Matthew and 
Luke's account, there was one man who was the primary spokesperson between the two, which is why Mark and Luke focus on him. But Matthew tells us two demon-possessed men come out to meet Jesus on the shore of Galilee. I like to think that they're there waiting for him when he arrives. We've encountered demon possession briefly in Matthew's gospel. Uh, there's an offhand mention of it back in the beginning of Matthew chapter 8 with the crowds in Capernaum. And they bring their uh, afflicted friends and family to Jesus to be healed. But beyond that, this is actually one of only two specific accounts of demon possession in Matthew's gospel. And these two men were not only controlled by demons, but they were actually inhabited by them. Right? They were the house of demons. These evil spirits had taken up residency in these men, and they were under their direct control and power. We'll see that play out for us as we go through the text. Now, demon possession was not an unknown phenomenon in the ancient world, and it was generally accepted as a real occurrence. But who are demons? What are demons? This is a question we have to understand to really see what's going on here in this text. Demons are evil spirits mentioned all throughout the Bible, but specifically demons are fallen angels. They are angels who have rebelled against God. They were created in original goodness as immaterial spirits in the heavenly realms, but demons are those angels that rebelled against God with Satan, and as a result, according to Revelation 12, were cast out of heaven, cast down with Satan to the earth. These angels, these demons, are of course still spirit beings, but corrupted by sin. And instead of serving God and helping man, which is what the angels are created to do, demons do the opposite. They serve Satan, they rebel against God, and they seek to harm human beings, sometimes physically, sometimes, always, spiritually. Now, demons are limited in their power and ability. They're not omnipresent. They're not omnipotent. They're not omniscient, right? Uh, they're not as powerful as God in any way, shape, or form. They are limited in their power and ability. But there is one thing they can do, according to Scripture. We see it in our text this morning. They can possess human beings who are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In other words, they can possess unregenerate, unbelieving people. And the two individuals we encounter in our text this morning who come out to meet Christ have become controlled and possessed by demons. We don't know how they got that way. Maybe they were, you know, playing with a Ouija board in Gadara and, and it happened. Who knows, right? We just don't know. But what we do know is that they are under the direct control of these evil spirits and that the possession results in frightening, unusual, supernatural, and dangerous behavior. And Matthew tells us, right in verse 28, that these men were so fierce no one could pass by but he tells us also that they come out of the tombs. They're living in the tombs. Mark and Luke tell us this. This was their home, probably caves among the tombs in the hillside where these men would live. That's a strange and creepy place to live, right? If somebody lived in the cemetery, you would be a little freaked out by that, right? And for a Jewish audience, there could be no more unclean location to live than among a bunch of dead bodies, right? On top of that, Luke tells us that they wore no clothes. They're running around naked. Mark tells us that all day and all night they would be crying out, screaming, moaning, cutting themselves with rocks. So you have these two demon-possessed men running around naked in the tombs, shrieking at all hours, scarred, cut up, bloody. It sounds like something out of a horror movie, doesn't it? It's a really horrifying sight. Can you imagine what the disciples were thinking? They're like, are you sure this is the right place, Jesus? Are you sure this is where we should have gone? And not only were they scary, but they were dangerous. Mark tells us that they were so strong they could not be bound with chains and shackles. 
Nobody was strong enough to subdue them and tie them up. The locals had tried but failed. Matthew tells us in verse 28 that these men were so fierce, nobody could pass that way. In other words, these demon-possessed men would oppose any travelers coming through this area. And the implication is that they might even try to harm people who would try to pass through. Like disease, like the weather, these demon-possessed men were an uncontrollable force. No mere man, not even a group of mere men, had the power or authority to deal with them. And many modern people assume that demon possession is not and never has been real. That what most people account as demonic possession is just a mental illness. And no doubt there have been times where the two have been mistaken for each other. But this account here paints a very definite picture of demon possession. This cannot be mental illness. Consider what we see in verse 29. They recognize Jesus. Right? The first thing is they recognize Jesus. They've never met him before in their life. They know exactly who he is. They somehow knew he was coming to this side of the Sea of Galilee, and they are aware of who he is. He's no stranger to them, or to the demons, right, in these men. And we see that the demons also acknowledge they are not on the same side as him. What have you to do with us? This is their mortal enemy. Second, these demons call Jesus something we've only heard once in Matthew's Gospel. They call him the Son of God. They call him the Son of God. This is not a term that could be applied to just anybody. It refers to the, the veiled deity of Christ, veiled in his human nature. And interestingly, when you read the Gospels, it is primarily Satan and the demons who address Jesus with this title. It is primarily Satan and the demons who address Jesus as the Son of God. These men, or the demons in them, are clearly aware of Jesus' full identity. They know exactly who he is. That he is not merely man, but the Son of God in the flesh. The second person of the Trinity incarnate. Now demons, again, are not omniscient, but they know far more than human beings do. Jesus' disciples have not figured this out yet. And these demon-possessed men know it right away. Third, these demons reveal that they are aware there is a time when Jesus as the Son of God will judge and punish them with eternal torment. They say, have you come here to torment us before the time? Verse 29. These spirits, again, are pure evil. And there is no mercy for fallen angels. They are not made in the image of God. There is no grace for demons. There is no mercy for demons. And we could translate what they say as, have you come to torment us before the proper time? If we wanted to get a little more literal in the Greek, the appointed time for their judgment and eternal destruction. Matthew 25, 41 describes this time as the final judgment. Uh, Matthew writes, quoting Jesus, Then he, the king, will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That is the time that these demons are referring to, the time when they will be cast down into the lake of fire for eternal destruction. They're aware that this is coming. They know it's inevitable. They know that ultimately Christ will have all victory, all authority, and all dominion. But at the same time, these demons are a little irritated that Jesus is confronting them now. It's not time yet. Right? Jesus has come to crash their party a little sooner than they expected. Uh, this does reveal, however, there is a time allotted for them to be allowed on the earth, right? But it is a limited 
time. Again, these men know things that no mere man could know. They say things that no mere person could say. This is not mental illness. This is demonic possession here. And Jesus is there not to ignore the demons, not to just walk past them, but rather to demonstrate his power over them in delivering these two men from demonic possession. See, Jesus is beginning his assault on the demonic forces of this world during his earthly ministry. In the next few verses, Jesus is going to demonstrate firsthand how the kingdom of God is going to push back against the kingdom of darkness and ultimately eliminate it once and for all. Look at the next two verses, 30 through 32. We see the Son of God delivers. The Son of God delivers. Now, in the Gospels, we never see Jesus ignore a demonic possession when he encounters one. Right? There's not a single instance of Jesus running into somebody who's possessed by a demon and saying, oh, I'll get to you later, right? Or, you know, come see me in a couple thousand years, nothing like that, right? He deals with it then and there. He delivers them right away, casts out their demons, and he'll do that first. Uh, he'll do that here as well. But first, uh, Matthew talks about bacon, right? We have this mention of pigs, a herd of pigs in verse 30. There's a whole herd feeding off in the distance, close enough to see, but still far off. This is going to be pretty important in a second here. But consider this for a moment, right? A herd of pigs would never be found in a Jewish territory. They were, they were uh, unlawful to eat, unlawful to raise. They were considered highly unclean animals, and they were viewed as disgusting, right? That's how the Jews viewed pigs. Now, there's, there's really a, a theme of uncleanness that's kind of woven into this story, isn't there? We see these men possessed by unclean spirits living in an unclean, unclean place, and now we have these unclean pigs over here, in the distance, it's hard to think that Matthew's Jewish readers find anything appealing about this story so far. Um, the one thing the Bible tells us about demons is that they don't like to be homeless. Turn over to Matthew 12 for a moment. Matthew chapter 12. Of course, we'll eventually get to this passage as we go through Matthew, but just to look at it briefly this morning, Matthew 12, 43 through 35, uh, 45, excuse me, Jesus describes how unclean spirits interact with, with homes, with their host, we could say. Jesus says in verse 43, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first so it will be with this evil generation. There's a lot to talk about there, of course, but one thing we see Jesus saying is that demons do not like to be homeless. They do not like to just be out there without a home, without somebody to inhabit, someone to possess. If a demon possessed somebody, they'd like to remain in that person. And if they were cast out, they'd find a new home. Demons like to inhabit God's created beings. We see them possessing people through the Gospels. Right? That's their first choice, human beings. I, I can't help but wonder if the demons are jealous that man is made in God's image and that man is loved specially by God. But for these demons, because they're, they're pretty aware of what's coming, right? They know Jesus is going to throw the smack down on them a little bit here. They know what's happening. And for them, apparently pigs are a better choice than having no home at all. And so in verse 31, we see the demons begging Jesus, saying, if you're going to cast us out, Send us away into the herd of pigs. 
you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Now think about this for a moment, right? We get this picture sometimes um, that, you know, like Jesus and Satan are arm wrestling, right? And, and eventually one of them will win or something like that. Like they're on the same playing field and it's this ultimate battle between good and evil. But what we see here is something completely different. We don't see any resistance from the demons at all. We don't see any argument from the demons. We don't see any protest. They complain a little bit, right? Why are you here? The time's not ready yet. You shouldn't be here now. But when they know Jesus is going to cast them out, they don't say anything to push back against that as if they had any kind of authority at all. They are fully aware that Jesus is in control over them and that they are subject to his will. They do not have authority over Christ. It's not even, it's not even comparable, right? Really, uh, Jesus' authority is so great here, they have to ask his permission to go into the pigs. They have to ask his permission to go into the pigs. They can't even do that. They are subject to Jesus' decision, right? Just like Satan had to ask God for permission to afflict Job, so these demons must ask for Jesus' permission as well. And so Jesus utters the one word we see from him in this paragraph. One word, right? Go. Go. He gives the demons permission to enter the pigs. He casts them out of these two men that have been possessed for who knows how long. Matthew doesn't really tell us anything specific about the demons who come out of these two men. But Mark and Luke do. Mark and Luke tell us that uh, when Jesus asked them their name, these demons identify themselves as legion, for we are many. Right? That's what Mark and Luke quote. There's not just one or two demons in these men. Okay? Uh, it's a ton of demons. A legion was a Roman military unit consisting of four to 6,000 soldiers. And it's very possible there were thousands of demons in these two men. There's certainly enough demons to possess an entire herd of pigs. When the demons enter the pigs, something happens. The entire herd runs down the hillside into the Sea of Galilee. I mean, it's just amazing to think this entire army of demons, right, is subject to Jesus' word. Incredible. Incredible. The pigs run down and drown, and the whole herd is lost. The whole herd is lost. Every single pig. Did the demons make the pigs do this? Perhaps. We don't know. Did the pigs do this in response to being possessed, right? Becoming crazed, perhaps, and losing sense? Maybe, right? We don't know. We're not told in the text. But what is interesting is that pigs are excellent swimmers, right? They are excellent swimmers. They do not naturally drown. They swim very well. And that could indicate to us that this mass drowning was actually the result of the demons' own destructive impulses, right? That they are so corrupt, so rebellious, that they end up destroying themselves in the end. Now, to a Jewish audience, the loss of the pigs would have been an occasion for joy, probably, right? Uh, Jesus is not rejoicing over the loss of the pigs here. But Jesus is absolutely more concerned with these two men than the entire herd of pigs. He absolutely values these two demon-possessed men far more than an entire herd of pigs. Human beings are in a unique category. We are not like the animals. We are different. We are made in God's image. We have a soul. Animals do not. Human beings have inherent value animals do not have. Christ himself took on humanity to redeem human beings. 
That is his chief and primary concern. Is the salvation of humans. Now, the author of Hebrews describes this in Hebrews chapter 2. I'll just turn there for a moment. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 16. The writer of the Hebrews is speaking about the redemptive work of Christ. And he says, Since therefore the children, uh, that's talking about those who Christ saves, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And he goes on to say this, For surely it is not angels that Christ helps, but he helps the offspring of of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Do you see that there? Christ is concerned and focused on the redemption of human beings, not angels, not pigs, human beings. And that is his, really his priority in this text. The souls of these two men, at least one of whom, according to Mark and Luke, seems to believe in Jesus, as we'll see in a moment, the souls of these two men, their well-being is of far greater importance and value than pigs to Jesus. What a picture of the advance of the kingdom of God this is, pushing back against the spiritual powers of darkness as Christ liberates these two men. And the coming of the kingdom of God is absolutely about the forgiveness of sins. It is absolutely about the reconciliation of man to God. But it is also about the deliverance of sinners from Satan's clutches. Paul connects the two clearly in Colossians 1, 13-14 when he writes that uh, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, natural man is, is, is born into that kingdom of darkness. The Bible tells us that we are born really under Satan's influence, under Satan's uh, rule in this earth. And through Christ, God brings His people out of that into the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, where there is forgiveness of sins. But you have both going on there. A central part of Jesus' mission is described for us in 1 John 3, 8. really can't get much clearer. The reason the Son of God appeared, John writes, was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil tempted Adam and Eve, plunging mankind into sin. And the devil, through demonic activity, continues to oppress fallen man, and to lead him away from Christ. But Jesus comes to overthrow Satan's hold on this world. And we see in our text this morning, he will be victorious in that battle. This is a, a picture, a skirmish, we could say, of the final battle that is to come, where Christ's victory is once and for all accomplished. His enemies made a footstool under his feet. This should be encouraging to us. Right? This should give us hope. It's true, demons can't possess a Christian, but they can certainly attack a Christian. Now consider the way that the authority we see Jesus having over even the demons should affect the way that we consider spiritual warfare. Um, some Christians assign themselves way too much power, right, when we talk about spiritual warfare. I'm going to bind this demon in the name of Jesus, stuff like that, right? The Bible does not give us that authority, and the Bible does not tell us to do this. The Bible does not put us in the general's chair when it comes to spiritual warfare. We are not called to go on the offensive. 
We read about the armor of God in Ephesians 6. That's defensive armor. The kind of armor Paul describes there is defensive armor, not the kind of armor that the soldiers who'd go to the front lines would wear. That's important for us to keep in mind because our job, our primary job in spiritual warfare is to call on the one, the champion, who can vanquish Satan and his enemies. Harold Sinkbill in his book, The Care of Souls, writes this. I love this. Rather than attempting to fight off the assaults of devil, world, and flesh on our own, it is important that we instead don our armor and sound the alarm at the first sign of attack. We have one on our side who has already fought that fight and won. The devil is a defeated enemy. Christ Jesus is our champion who even now intercedes for us at the Father's throne. Brothers and sisters, we aren't the one who uh, we, we, we aren't the ones who have authority over demons. Jesus is. He is the one who can and does protect his people from the evil one. Right? He is our champion. As James writes, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You see that there? We resist Satan and his demons by drawing near to God. We resist Satan and his demons by drawing near to Christ. Almost this picture of a little child running behind their parents' legs, right? Saying, please help. You know, where I'm shy, I'm feeling scared, whatever it might be. That's almost the picture there, right? That battle is for Christ to fight on our behalf, right? So what we do is we go to Him. We find shelter in Him. We seek Him. We draw near to Christ. That's how we fight spiritual battles, right? Drawing near to our champion. And with such a miraculous occurrence, right, with such power and authority displayed here on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, surely the people of the Gadarenes would have had a parade, right? This guy's awesome. They would have been celebrating him, celebrating this wonderful Savior who got rid of these crazy guys in the tombs. But that is not what we see. Matthew paints a different picture for us in the final verses of our text. We see instead that the people reject Christ. Matthew tells us in verse 33 that there are herdsmen there, right? The, the shepherds, we could say, of the pigs, you know, who have watched this whole thing happen. You can just imagine they're just standing there watching their herd run down into the sea. That must have been bizarre. Uh, this is not insignificant to them. They've watched the demons be cast out. They watched this interaction with Jesus, even from afar, and they've watched their herd of pigs drown for no explainable reason. If you're not a pig farmer, again, if you're, if you're a Jew, no big deal. Less pigs, the better. But if you happen to be a pig farmer, um, then this might be pretty important to you. If you just lost your entire herd of pigs, that's going to be a big economic loss for you. Right? They just lost their entire livelihood in an instant, basically. And so Matthew tells us that these herdsmen, they flee, they run away. They're freaked out. And they run to the city, several miles away, and they tell everything that happened to them. They tell the people in the city everything that they've seen. But Matthew highlights not just the, the loss of the pigs, but highlights everything that happened with the demon-possessed men. That seems to be what's emphasized here. It's the exorcism, right? That's the highlight of their account. And it wasn't long before all the people in the area, in the city, in the country, hearing the report of the herdsmen, were coming out to see Jesus. Matthew tells us in verse 34, they, they wanted to see for themselves what had happened. Luke describes it like this in Luke 8.35. The, 
the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, I love this part next, right? And found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus. Right? He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were afraid. Consider this picture for a moment. Everybody in town would have known about these two men. They would have known about these two demon-possessed men. They would have heard the screeches. They may have even seen them. They may have been chased by them. Who knows? They're very aware of these two guys in the tombs. Right? We know the locals had tried to chain them up. They couldn't. These two men were probably the scariest things around. And Jesus delivers these two men from demon possession and demonstrates his superior power to the demons who are within them with such ease at a word. So much so that these men are sitting at Jesus' feet. Completely normal. Sitting at Jesus' feet, that's a position of submission to authority. A position of, uh, of being taught by a teacher, really, is what that is. Jesus is clearly the master here. Now, Jesus has so much power that these strong demon-possessed men were powerless before him and that they are now sitting at his feet. Well, this guy might be an even worse problem, right? I'm sure there was a degree, I mean, we're told, by Luke especially, there was a major degree to which these people were frightened of Jesus. But at the same time, there's a sense in which we should expect them to show some kind of gratitude, Right? Something, something to honor Christ, to, to maybe sit at his feet like the demon-possessed men are doing, but the people don't do anything like this. They don't bring any other demon-possessed men to Jesus. They don't ask Jesus to do any miracles. They don't ask him anything about who he is. These things apparently don't matter to them. What matters is the economic loss of the pigs and the frightening power that Jesus has displayed. It's interesting because we talked last week about how the disciples... Once they are delivered from the storm, fear Christ. But they fear Christ in a marveling way. They're in awe of Jesus, and it draws them closer to him. But the fear of the people of the Gadarenes makes them want to repel Jesus from them. They want him gone. This is a rejection of Jesus. Maybe a little out of ignorance, but on the other hand, partly out of spiritual darkness, out of the spiritual condition of the people living here. They do not receive him. They do not marvel at him or his power. Their fear is not a godly fear that draws them closer to Christ. But they reject him and ask him to leave because they're afraid of what else he might do. Scripture tells us there is a spiritual dynamic at work here. Turn to, to John chapter 3 for a moment. John describes for us What's going on under the surface? John chapter 3. Looking at 19 through 21. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus here. And uh, here's what he says about the natural state of human beings. John 3.19. And this is the judgment, the light, that is Christ, has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light 
lest his work should be exposed. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John is describing the natural state of man very simply. Jesus, as the light, is offensive to natural man who's in the darkness. He likes it that way. He wants to keep his sin over here nice and safe in the darkness. And when the light of Christ shines upon it and exposes the sin of our hearts and of our lives, the natural response is to want to get out of there, like cockroaches scuttering when you turn off the light in a room, right? They don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, with the light. Now, sure, Jesus as a moral teacher, not too offensive, right? Jesus, the kind and gentle sort of hippie type person that he's often portrayed as, well, that's not very offensive. But the full-orbed picture of Jesus in Scripture as the one who has all power, all authority over the demons and over each one of our lives, and as a result, has the right to make a claim on us and to tell us how to live. The picture of Jesus in Scripture who says, there is only one way to salvation and it is through faith in me. As Curtis read this morning, the Christ in Scripture who calls his people to holiness, that is offensive to natural man. That is offensive. It was offensive to the people of Gadara that day. They rejected Christ because of what he cost them. They were more concerned with the pigs than the condition of those two men. And more importantly, with the glorious Son of God who was in their midst. They were more concerned with temporary welfare than the kingdom of heaven and its crown jewel, Jesus. They were spiritually darkened. And they rejected Christ. Friends, what is your response to Christ? What is your response to the light? Do you reject him, keeping him at arm's length, being unwilling to trust him and submit to him as Lord? If you're here this morning or if you're watching online and you're not a Christian, you must understand that while you may not be demon-possessed, you are still in need of deliverance from your sin and the punishment it deserves. Don't reject Christ, but receive him. Trust him because he alone is Lord and has the authority both to liberate you from the kingdom of darkness and to bring you into his kingdom in which there is the full and final forgiveness of sin. If you want to be out of Satan's clutches, right? If you want to be uh, out, of, out of the way of demonic uh, oppression, come to Christ. He is the one who is the champion for his people. If you are a Christian, worth asking ourselves, is Christ my chief good? Would I rather have him than a herd of pigs, whatever that herd of pigs may be to you? Is your fear of losing things in this life and your discipleship to Christ greater than your desire to be near him? Are we like the people of the gatherings in this regard? Question we need to ask ourselves sometimes. But at the same time, take heart and be encouraged by the power of the Savior. There's no force of darkness too mighty for Christ to deal with. We've seen him have authority over disease, over the weather, now over demons. And yes, there still is evil in this world, and even though Satan and his demons do work as hard as they can against Christ, against his people, remember that the picture of this morning's text reminds us that that day is coming in which Christ will fully and finally destroy Satan and his angels once and for all. 
And if we are His, He will bring us to the other side of that day. He will not let our soul be lost to the prince of darkness. Jesus wins. He has all authority, even over the demons. And so go to Him. Find refuge in Him. And marvel at His power. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, what an amazing picture of your power and authority on display here for us. Lord, what an amazing picture of your love for human beings, your love for us. That you would go all the way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to deliver two demon-possessed men who never even asked you to come. But Lord Jesus, you are so good that you know our need, you know our afflictions, you know the depth of our sin. You know all about us. You knew those men would be there. And because of your goodness and to display your power, you went and you delivered them. And Lord Jesus, even though your feet do not touch the ground of this earth at this time, your power is certainly present. We thank you that you can protect us, that no one can overcome you. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to, uh, Lord, to find peace, resting in your authority, that we would not fear Satan and his demons. Lord, they are real, and they do seek to tear down the glory of your name and to harm your church, but it's futile. Is futile in the long run, Lord. So help us to come to you when we find ourselves under spiritual attack and to stand behind you, our champion and our general. May your authority strengthen our hearts. Father, would you help us to value the things of the kingdom of God more than the things of this world? The loss of a herd of pigs might be nothing to us for the sake of knowing Christ. We ask all of this in his name. Amen.